Amen. You may be seated. And I hope today you know Jesus, right? He is our living hope. He conquered death. Never to die again. That's actually what our passage is going to say today. So it was a good song. For those of you I've not met, my name's Steve. It's my privilege to be the pastor here. And I wanted to take a moment before we got started and just talk to all of you who consider yourselves a part of Desert Springs. Um, here's my plea, my request, and that is whatever you do, don't miss next weekend. Right? So I've been the pastor here for a little over 28 years. I know I'm much younger in person, right? Um, <laughs> And we've had, we've had some very momentous, important, uh, I would even use the term seminal moments in our church. I mean, we've moved twice. Uh, we've gone multi-service. We've seen God do great things. We've had moments of tragedy within our church. I mean, we've been through a lot of, of very important pieces. And, and I think this is one of those moments and so next weekend, we're going to have the groundbreaking, which, by the way, is kind of interesting. You start thinking about how do you do a groundbreaking when you do four services over two days? And oh, by the way, you can't let the kids stay in here without their parents or else we'll have them all week and we're not going to do that. So I think we figured out a way to do that. That's going to be good. But we're also going to be talking quite a bit about uh, future vision, uh, our our elders have spent a lot of time praying, seeking the Lord, and, and we feel like we've got some direction we want to share with you. I do want to tell you that when you come in next weekend to the parking lot, it's going to throw you off because uh, we're going to have a lot of this over here not accessible because we're going to be actually kind of laying out. So where is this bump out going? So you can go and do. And so, um, so anyway... Uh, and I know I, I gave up asking that for you to come early, right? So I'm not going to do that. Just know if you get here, your normal time, it may be a little harder to find. We'll have parking over here, but it'll just be different ways in and, and all that. Here's the other thing. Uh, to Because it's going to be a big day, it's going to be a fun day, and we want to make it monumental, plus we know how you all operate as a church because i'm the pastor this is what motivates me we're gonna have food next weekend all right there you go i just get it out so we're gonna have uh rudy's breakfast burritos tacos whatever so come hungry it's gonna be a great time we're gonna worship the lord we're gonna pray together uh but don't miss next weekend all right that's just that's my plea that's my encouragement now if you got your bibles we are in the book of revelation we're walking our way through it. By the way, we will not be in Revelation next week because we're going to, again, focus on that. We'll be back in two weeks. We'll be actually starting in chapter 2 on these letters to the churches. But today, we're going to finish up chapter 1. And I wanted to start with actually a question today. And the question is, have you ever spent much time wondering thinking, considering what Jesus looks like. I mean, we're going to go see him, right? We live for that day. What does he look like? Now, obviously, throughout the years, we've had a lot of artist renderings. 
And I don't know about you, but I've kind of been frustrated at times. You would, in the gospel writers, I mean, we have the Son of God, right? Couldn't you have told us something about him, right? Was he tall? Was he short? Uh, brown eyes, blue eyes. I mean, again, we, we have all of the, these different views, and I would argue that most of our artist renderings are those which are made up mostly of people from uh, maybe Europe and America. Uh, if you travel in Israel, you, you probably think a little darker pigmentation. I wanted to end with this one uh, because this is the one we had in our house when I was growing up, right? So that was for me. But what did Jesus look like? We're not told much. Actually, Isaiah gives us a couple things. Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, no appearance that we should be attracted to him. So Jesus wasn't an Adonis, you know, not like he, he wasn't just some really good-looking dude, you know, muscles everywhere. Everybody go, oh, wow. No, he just kind of common earlier in Isaiah he says this I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard so most likely Jesus had a beard what does he look like what you have in Revelation chapter 1 verses 12 to 20 is the most detailed description of physical description of Jesus in all of scripture now obviously it's Jesus in his glory and so there's certain things that I think are emphasized here which are going to have to do with where he's going in the book of Revelation and I'm not sure this is exactly how he will reveal himself to us but I think a lot of it is true I mean John in his epistle the same one that wrote Revelation said this, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. Or how is he today? He is in his glory. So this beautiful description of Christ. So let's read it together. I'll read out loud. If you'll follow along in your Bible, that would be great. Verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven gold, golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in his strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. He's our living hope. 
And the things, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, the things which are to take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars, when you saw what you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So we see Jesus in his glory. You'll notice the one of the words that just kept appearing a lot, a lot was like, right? So this is a description of what Jesus' appearance was. He starts with his location. We see that in verse 15, or verse 13. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man. So Jesus is standing in the middle of seven golden lampstands. Now, we already read in verse 20, he tells us exactly what those golden lampstands are. The seven lampstands, is that last phrase, are the seven churches. Well, what seven churches? Go back to verse 11, which we looked at last weekend when Jamie preached. It's the seven churches that he's going to write these letters to. So Jesus, in this moment, is walking amongst among the, the seven local churches. The idea here is that they are lampstands. So they are the ones on which lamps. And, and, and the lamps themselves in this time would have been probably made of uh, pottery. You put the oil in and coming out this side would be the, the wick. And you would put them on a lampstand so that it would give light to the whole house. It kind of reminds us of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Oh, by the way, if you ever get the chance to go to Israel, you're going to be up at the Sea of Galilee. And your, your guide will probably call out this passage and he will point you up to the northwest part of the Sea of Galilee and you'll see two cities up on this hill that date back to the time of Christ and most likely Jesus was pointing to those cities and maybe it was getting to be uh, dusk and, and the lights are beginning to appear you can't hide them and that's what he's saying nor does anybody light a lamp and put it under a basket which is still a good idea don't do that you'll cause a fire uh, but he puts it on a lampstand and it gives light to all those in the house let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. This is that whole idea that we are to be light. We, we live in a world of darkness, a world that is devoid of truth because they've turned their back to the Lord. They don't live according to the truth of the word of God. So you and I are to be light. We are to live Jesus with our life, to share Jesus with our lips. We are to be the light. Well, what we're seeing here in Revelation chapter 1 is that collectively, as a group of believers, that Jesus views us as the lamps, the lampstands on which his light is lit in communities. That we're the ones that are responsible to be salt and light. We're the ones that are responsible to hold forth the gospel. That we're the ones that are to be the proclaimers of truth. 
And so Jesus is there. He's in the middle. He, he's close. You know, you, you think about Jesus, some of his last words to the disciples there in Galilee is, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end. He's walking in the middle of the churches. Jesus is not far from us today. He is near. His church is his bride. He cares about us. Not only that, he talks about it being a golden lampstand gold of course implies the idea of great value great worth you think of what peter said about the church he says you know we're we were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold but with the precious blood of christ we are of great value and worth to him and what we do is is of course of, of incredible importance and so he stands there in the middle of all of this and then notice the phrase and in the middle of the lampstand I saw one like a son of man now we talked about this already this is a phrase that Jesus loved to use of himself you find it in Daniel chapter 7 which is actually looks ahead to what the book of revelation is about the coming of the end of the of the kingdoms of the world and the establishment of messiah's kingdom and in daniel 7 it says i kept looking in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven one like the son of man was coming and this is how jesus so often referenced himself <clears throat> but i think there's even a closer tie Go back to John chapter 5. So John, who wrote the book of Revelation, wrote the gospel of John. In John chapter 5, he tells the story of Jesus healing the man lame at the pool of Bethsaida. And this is, he did it on a Sabbath. Uh-oh, right? he, really, he really messed up there, right? He healed the guy, but it's a Sabbath, no work, right? And so they're all complaining at him, and Jesus is saying, no, 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 did, I, I'm... I'm the son of God, right? He's given him all this evidence. And in verse 27, he says this, and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Well, think about here in Revelation 1. He is walking amongst the seven lampstands. Why? Well, it is to do evaluation. It is to give his judgment. That's what the, the seven letters to these churches he he's gonna commend them for some things he's gonna condemn them for some things he's gonna give them prescriptions for how they are to to move forward and to fix the problem he is in essence judging and giving his evaluation of the churches and he does that because he's the son of man he is the one to whom all authority has been given so then it says this he's clothed in a robe reaching to the feet girded across his chest with a golden sash so now we go from where he is to what he's wearing the long robe and most likely the idea of the long robe is the authority that he had the, the men of great authority in, in Bible times wore long robes. Uh, in fact, if, if you've ever you've 
been with us for a while we we often talk about how the bible says to, to gird up your loins right and so people would would take their robes and they would they would tuck it in well a, a man of authority didn't do that kind of labor he didn't run right so he never did that he wore kings wore long robes prophets do you remember do you remember samuel and how his mom made him a robe every year and brought it Right? That's what they wore. So most likely. Now, someone said, well, high priests also wore a long robe, and, and that could be, but I don't know that it's really tying into a priestly thing here as much as that he is the one who has authority. He is the one who, is the, as the son of man, has been given authority to bring evaluation. And so he says that he's clothed with this wrong robe all the way to his feet he's girded across his chest with his golden sash which by the way if you go ahead and look in revelation 15 the angels who bring the bold judgments are kind of got that same gold sash and now he moves to his physical characteristics his head and his hair were white like white wool like snow his eyes were like a flame of fire his feet were like burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in a furnace his voice was like the sound of many waters in his right hand he had held seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in its strength so now the personal features and and as you begin to unpack them what they keep pointing us towards as the son of man that he is there to bring evaluation judgment but he does it out of his righteousness he does it out of his holiness he does it out of his justice right he so it talks about him having a hair white like wool and and, and i i couldn't help but think of how Isaiah chapter 1 says come now let us reason together says the Lord though your sins are as scarlet they will be as white as snow though they are red like crimson they will be like wool and the idea is white like wool this is his holiness his righteousness this is what what is at the heart of his character that's reflected in what he looks like his eyes are a flame of fire. Well, as we're going to see even as it talks about his feet glow as coming out of the furnace, right? What, what does fire do? Fire purifies. Fire burns away what is impure. To make precious metal even more precious, you put it into the fire and it burns away the dross. So he talks about his, his eyes are a flame of fire, which, by the way, is the same description that is given to us in revelation 19 when he returns at the second coming it's it's this idea that it, it's going to burn away all the dross right it's going to burn away all the fake it's going to burn away all the things that aren't really real it's going to get to the core of this so when you think about how he is going to with eyes of fire are going to evaluate the churches you know churches so often can be perceived can put a front out there 
But in his evaluation, it burns through all that and it goes to their heart. So you think of the church of Laodicea, the seventh church. Their evaluation of themselves, their evaluation by other churches are, man, they're rich, they're increased in good, they have need of nothing. And Jesus says, and you don't know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You see, it's not what... The community thinks. It's not what the church thinks of itself. It's what, this is where you really are spiritually. And oh, by the way, the church of Philadelphia, you see yourselves as being small and just not having much going for you. Oh, I've set before you an open door which no one can shut. You're going to do great things. Church at Ephesus. You, you, you know, you do all this service, you do all these good things, but oh yeah, 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 here's the problem, you've left your first love. You see, it's this idea of evaluation. It burns through it. Couldn't help but think of that verse that we looked at in the book of Hebrews when we studied it. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and lay bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. You know, we can fool others. We can put on those little facades, right? And others may not know, but Jesus knows. His eyes are a flame of fire. Let's keep going. It says, um, his feet were like burnished bronze. Again, this idea of purity, of holiness. His voice was like the sound of many waters. And of course, John is on the Isle of Patmos, just a small little island out there in the middle of the Mediterranean. You know, one of the things, if you ever go to the ocean, you've all been to the ocean, to me is always fascinating, is there's no on-off switch for the ocean. It just does its thing over and over and over without fail the, the tide rolls in the tide rolls out the waves crash in and you just get this sense of incredible power incredible uh, because there's nothing you could do to stop it and I think of, of John sitting there and the, the, sitting there on this little island and hearing the waves crashing you think about how in Ezekiel, Ezekiel said, and behold, the glory of God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters, this, this power, this authority that he had. And then he says this, and in his right hand, he held seven stars. Now we know what the seven stars are because of verse 20. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So in his right hand, he holds the seven stars, which he tells us are seven angels. Now that's an interesting expression. Is he trying to say that every church has an angel? Now, obviously, we've been really blessed here at Desert Springs because we have Tammy, right? So if we get really close there. But does, is he trying to say that every church has an angel? We don't see that any other place in Scripture. And I don't think that's what he's saying. It, it can also be translated messenger, which I think is a better. Why? Well, 
because when you get to chapters 2 and 3, he actually writes the letters to these seven churches to the angel of. And he, in essence, is applying responsibility on their part for the shape that their church is in. And so a lot of the churches have condemnations, which you, you mean the angels are responsible for the spiritual health of the church? That doesn't seem to make sense. And aren't they perfect? Wouldn't If they were responsible, it would always be perfect. So I don't think he's talking about angels. I think the, the better idea here, the messengers, the leadership, the, 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 those elders who are responsible... These are the ones that he holds in his right hand. And what does it mean that he holds them in his right hand? Does it mean, well, it can mean that, right, he's close. He's got us, right? That's a good truth. But I don't think that's the picture. I think the idea that he holds them in his right hand is, again, context is what? He's evaluating the churches. It's about authority. It's about he's the son of man. It's about he is, you know, with the eyes of fire are going to give evaluation and he holds the ultimate authority in the church, which is one of the things that quite honestly here in America, we miss. I mean, we live in the land of democracy. We live in the land of the representative republic. We think that's how this works. And so we set up our churches that, you know, that the, the, the elders or whatever, they represent the people. Folk, that's not biblical. Do you know who the elders represent in a church? They represent Jesus. There's only one owner of the church. It's Jesus. It's his church. That's their job. He holds them in his right hand. There's authority there. there. There's the responsibility there. Ultimately, the responsibility of the elders is to Jesus because it's his church. He's the one that's in charge. He's the one who gives the final evaluation. And then it says in and out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. This sharp two-edged sword was a Roman sword. It was very short. You know, when we think of swords, we think of long things, and you went slashing at people. You think of Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? He, he cut off the guy's ear. Trust me, he was not aiming for the guy's ear, right? He was aiming for something else. Uh, and he just missed and just got his ear, right? He's slashing. That's not this. This, this the Roman short sword was very short, but it was very sharp. It wasn't made for slashing. It was made for puncturing. In fact, the picture would often become that of, of almost surgical in nature. And because it was sharp on both sides, it resembled, it resembled a tongue. And this, this idea that out of Jesus, when he comes and he brings his evaluation, he's just not slashing. He's not just, but it's precise. He knows what every church, he knows all of this. And so his, his evaluation is going to be precise. It is going to be exact. You think of how the book of Hebrews, it talks about that the word of God is 
quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, right? Because it's very exacting. That's the heart of this. In Isaiah chapter 11, it says this, but with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted. So on the one hand, as he comes to judge, he understands those that have have been abused and, and those who have not been treated fairly. But he will also strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked. And so Jesus is coming in his authority to judge. That's Jesus in his his glory. What his glory here represents is his character. You see, all of this keeps pointing us back to things about Jesus, that he is righteous that he is true, that he is powerful, that he will judge, that he is faithful. All of these things. Now, to be honest with you, those typically are not things about Jesus that we really like to dwell on. I mean, his holiness, his, we, we kind of like to move more towards, well, what about his love? What about his grace? What about his compassion? But notice the description of his character that comes to this. It's the whole idea that he is holy, that he is righteous, that he is true. And that everything is set at that standard. Not not the standard of this earth, but the standard of his holiness. And that's where judgment will take place. And that's kind of sobering. Which is why I love verse 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. So, John's the best friend of Jesus. I mean, He's the disciple that Jesus loved. That's how he describes himself. He he lived and worked with Jesus for three years here on earth. He saw him even on the Mount of Transfiguration. But now he sees him in his glory. He can't deal with it. He falls over like a dead man. Which, by the way, scripturally is kind of how people, when they saw Jesus or God in his glory, how they responded. Uh, You think of Isaiah, who is caught up, and the angels are singing, holy, holy, holy. And he's just, oh man, I'm I'm a man who have unclean lips, right? You think of Samson's father, uh, Manoah, who was found, he goes, you know, we, we should be dead because we've seen the angel of the Lord. But here you have John who sees Jesus in his glory. And John's an old man. We talked about that last week. But in the midst of all this, in the midst of his judgment, in the midst of his justice, in the midst of his holiness, in the midst of his righteousness, what do you see? You see his love. You see his compassion. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last you see this is the whole Jesus you know we we just like to emphasize one side but he is righteous he is true but he's also loving he is merciful he is compassionate 
And in the midst of all of this in his glory, John falls over and Jesus reaches down and puts his hand on his shoulder. And he says, don't fear, it is I. What's really interesting is in the Greek, this is almost the exact same phrase that Jesus used with his disciples. Remember that night they had fed the 5,000, he sent the disciples to go, he went up to pray, and then in the middle of the night he went walking on the water. And of course, they're scared to death because they're out in the middle of a storm and here comes Jesus and he's like he's going to walk by them. And Jesus' words to them in that moment is, do not be afraid, it is I. Almost the exact same expression that he uses here. You see, even though he is holy and he is righteous and he is true, he's a God of love, he's a God of compassion and that's how he deals with us. And what we see is that that is out of who he is. So now he, he describes himself in this fourfold description. I am, right? I am that covenant name of God. I am the first and the last. He's eternal. I am the living one. And I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. I'm the source of life. I mean, you think of John 5 right here. For as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to his Son also to have life in himself. Jesus says, man, I, I was dead, but I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. He has authority over it all. That's who he is. And yet he loves us. And that's the beauty about today. And, and I just want to finish because I'm just about out of time. But three wonderful reminders here. First of all, if you don't know Jesus, this is an incredible reminder that Jesus is the one who holds the keys to death and hell. Who lives and who dies, it's up to Jesus. Those that have eternal life and those that are going to hell are up to Jesus. He is the ultimate arbitrator of all of that. And the beauty is, is that today, today, right now, is this moment of salvation. Today's the day of salvation. Today is a day of grace. Today is a day to whoever believes in the Son, he has eternal life. But there's coming a day when there will be no more grace. There is a day of judgment that is coming. And let me tell you, every day, everyone on that day will believe but they will be without the sun and they will be cast into, into Hades today is the day of salvation Jesus is the one who holds the keys to death and Hades that's why Jesus said I am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me that's why he went to the cross and died for us to pay for our sins to offer his forgiveness and his grace to everyone who will put their faith in him today is the day of salvation but there's a day coming there's a day coming when it will no longer be a day of salvation accept Jesus today for those of us that know Jesus can I just remind all of us that we as believers are going to stand before him one day and give an account. And that account is going to be fair. It's going to be full, and it's going to be just. 
Because he will see through those things that we'd like to put out there for everybody, you know, how we want them to perceive us. And he will see our hearts and he will see the things that we did even to the motives. And this is why we are called to follow Jesus with our whole heart. We want to stand. We want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We get into the churches, man. We want to be like the people in Smyrna who has suffered so much. But Jesus promised to them because they have faithfully followed him. It's that they will walk with him. Right? We want to be those who aren't just Christians out here, Christ followers here, but here. Because this is, this is what's so important to him. It's from our heart. And you say, well, I'm not perfect. Yeah, he gets that. He understands that. That's the beauty of our heart because when we sincerely walk with him and we mess up and we screw up, then we can sincerely repent and he picks us back up and off we go. But see, when it's all out here, man, we, we, we don't have to repent. We don't have to seek after the Lord. We, we just manage the reputation. But his judgment will be full and it will be fair and it will be just. And we live for that day and we all want to be able to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. How do you do that? You follow Jesus with your whole heart. Just every day. Just seek him every day. It's all it takes. And lastly, can I remind us collectively as a church that we are here to be light. We've been placed on a lampstand in Goodyear, Arizona. We're here to hold truth. We're here to hold up the gospel. We're here to live on mission. As the last 10 years, I've served as the executive director for our association of churches. And over those 10 years, I've sadly been a part of some difficult times where we've actually had to close churches down. And the thing that probably has grieved my heart more than anything else is that after we've closed the church down, I've never heard from anybody that ever wondered where did the church go because the church was already gone. What if something happened and Desert Springs wasn't here? Would our community know? Would our community know that somehow, some way, we were gone. We're called to be light. We're called to be the hands and the feet of Jesus. We're his lampstand. Father, we love